Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Welcome to this bonus episode all about the execution of Albert Manning for the murder of Jane Flew on the 28th of September, 1892. Here's a quick recap of the case. Albert Manning was a 38-year-old labourer who had lived with Jane Flew from the age of 17 when he was a lodger with Jane and her husband, Job. Job left due to the affair that had begun between the pair, leaving Jane with their four children. There was one short interval in 1879 when Albert, for some reason, left Jane and moved to Wales, where he eventually married Mary Fry and lived in Pontypool. He came back to Jane and they started their relationship again. Albert was convinced that a man called Brian was having an affair with Jane and the arguments got heated until Jane threw him out of the house. Albert then got a building job near the shop in Kingswood where Jane worked, so he could watch her, and he had been thrown out several times, even by the police. On the day of the murder, Albert went into the shop and asked Jane if they could start up again. She refused, and a blazing shouting match started, with Jane shouting murder. At this point, Albert took out a gun he'd been carrying with him and shot her. He admitted all this in court, but still tried to get off the execution, by claiming insanity and acting accordingly, but no one was convinced, except for family and friends, who asked Albert's solicitor to make a plea to the Home Secretary, Mr Asquith. And so, a new medical review was ordered, after which the plea was denied. And now it's Thursday, the 16th of March, 1893, the day of Albert's execution. Of all the duties which the reporter of the day had to do, in the interests of the paper which he represented and the public, none was as unpleasant and harrowing as attending an execution. The pressman had to leave his feelings, if he had any, at home and proceed to the spot where the unhappy criminal was to end his days, with his mind intent on one thing only, capturing all those impressions of the scene which were necessary 
the compilation of a faithful and accurate description of what the public were anxiously waiting to know. With this task before them, the reporters made their way early on the morning of Thursday the 16th of March, 1893, to the county jail in Gloucester, where the principal, though unwilling actor in this awful tragedy, Albert Manning, had been confined since his condemnation. The pressman had been provided with admission by the under-sheriff, in whose hands responsibility rested for the carrying out of the arrangements, and the three local reporters presented themselves at the lodge door 20 minutes to eight. Having been detained for a few moments in the lodge keeper's office whilst their permit cards were examined, they were allowed to proceed to one of the exercise yards, where Mr DCC, Inspector Elliot, Sergeant Collett and four constables were already assembled. The prison bell commenced to toll at a quarter to eight, and about the same time, one of the warders was to be seen on the roof near where the flagstaff had been erected the previous day, with cord in hand, waiting to hoist the black flag. Just before the clock struck eight, the police and pressmen, in obedience to a summons from the warden, marched in procession along the corridors of the yard in which the scaffold stood. Here they joined the undersheriff for the county, his clerk, the governor of the jail, the prison surgeon, Sergeant Thayers, and a number of warders. The first private hanging at Gloucester Jail had taken place on the 8th of January, 1872, when 20-year-old Frederick Jones was put to death by famous executioner William Corcroft for the murder of his girlfriend, Emily Gardner, on a raised scaffold in the prison yard, which was the same scaffold used for public executions when it had been previously positioned on the roof so that people could see from outside of the prison. But this particular execution was in the prison yard and there were steps the prisoner had to climb to reach the four foot high platform. For the triple hanging of Edward Butt, Marianne Barry and Edwin Bailey in 1874, Robert Anderson, the hangman, asked for a pit to be dug to allow the gallows platform to be level with the yard. And it was this setup that continued until 1912. The gallows, which had been used before, were again erected over a bricked pit in a disused portion of the prison, by the side of which was the burial ground, where the other executed criminals were interred. It consisted of two uprights and a crossbeam, the drop being constructed of two trap doors, which were supported by a lever. The whole apparatus painted black and the rope already dangling in readiness for its victim. The spectators hadn't been there long before they realised that the convict had been taken from his condemned cell and was already on his way to the doom which awaited him. The executioner was Billington of Farnworth, who had arrived in Gloucester the day before at three o'clock and was at once taken by cab to the office of the county undersheriff. And from there he was taken straight to the jail, where he remained until after the execution. This was Billington's first visit to Gloucester in his official capacity. The last two or three executions had been carried out by his predecessor, Berry, who had now resigned. At the time, Billington was a man of 35 years of age 
fresh-coloured and of medium height. And when he arrived in the city, he had an ordinary bowler hat on and was attired in a dark suit of clothes over which he wore a dark overcoat with large pockets, which were noticed to be bulging as he walked down to the jail. Doubtless, these pockets contained the ropes, pinioning straps and other implements necessary for his gruesome calling. Billington was accompanied by an assistant named Scott, and they entered the condemned cell just on the stroke of eight, where they found the prison chaplain praying with Albert. Billington quickly produced the pinioning straps from his pocket, and Manning's arms were fastened behind him. He was then led forth by warders, who walked on either side, and preceded by the chaplain, who was reading the opening portions of the burial service, as the procession made its way to the instrument of death. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And Albert Manning walked from the condemned cell to the gallows with a firm, resolute step and did not require any assistance of the wardens, who remained close at hand just in case the prisoner gave way at the last moment. His demeanour was totally different to that which he maintained at the trial, Instead of keeping his eyes fixed on the ground, he walked with his head held high, and the dreamy, insane expression which he had assumed whilst he was in custody was now replaced by something approaching intelligence. Those who saw him at the trial immediately noticed the great change in the man's appearance. He looked better physically, and any doubts as to whether he was sane or not were at once removed. He wore the same brown cloth suit which he had on during the trial, but his neck was bare. He appeared to be looking into the sky when he was motioned to take his place over the drop, and Billington and Scott, both whom wore black velvet skull caps, knelt on either side of the convict for the purpose of strapping his legs. This was done quickly, as both the executioner and his assistant had done this many times, and evidently wanted to spare the wretched man as much mental anguish as possible. With both arms and legs now firmly pinioned, Billington put the noose around Albert's neck, adjusted it, whipped out of his pocket the white cap which slipped over Albert's head, and the chaplain was relating the words, Man that's born of a woman hath but a short time to live, and full of misery. Billington stepped aside in order to draw the bolt and complete his awful task. Just a few seconds. The suspense, the painful silence, was broken only by the solemn tones of the chaplain as he repeated the closing passages of the service of the dead. Between the acting of a dreadful thing and the first motion, all the interim is like a phantasma or hideous dream. But the suspense was over almost as soon as it had started. In reality, the executioner, in a business-like way, coolly stepped aside and the onlookers knew only too well what was to follow. He quickly touched the lever, the only obstacle now, between Albert's life on earth and his entrance into the next world. More than one eye was dimmed with tears as the executioner looked up, much as to say, I have completed my task. A sigh of relief was heard as the man shot through the trap doors with almost lightning speed, and he was dead in an instant. 
He hung like a plummet at the end of a line, but for some moments after the trap doors had been released, the rope twitched convulsively. The reporters then drew near to the gallows and looked into the pit where the dead murderer was hanging, and for some seconds the fingers, as usual under such dreadful circumstances, moved slightly and the body vibrated. It was, however, soon over, and all was still, Billington having bent forward and steadied the rope with his hand. Albert weighed twelve stones seven pounds, and Billington gave him a drop of five feet, and the whole process was declared to be one of the fastest that had ever taken place in that jail. The body was allowed to hang for the customary hour, and after the inquest it was buried fully clothed in the graveyard of the jail. Albert Manning did not say a word on the scaffold, but his lips were noticed to be quivering, indicating that he was engaged in prayer. Early that morning, he sent for Warden Wheeler and thanked him for his kindness to him whilst there. It was said that Manning maintained his sullen demeanour, which he had exhibited all along until the day before the execution, when there was a distinct change. He dictated three letters to Major Knox for friends, telling them of his repentance. One of these was to the Reverend Tompkins, vicar of Wick near Bath, whose Bible class Manning had been in the habit of attending with the murdered woman some years before. He desired the governor tell Mr Tompkins that he would die in repentance and with faith in a loving saviour. The last meeting he had on the Wednesday was with his mother. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode, which allowed me to go into more detail about the execution of Albert Manning for the murder of his lover, Jane Flew, in Kingswood. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk So until next time guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>